College. Our classical, conversa- our classical conversation series returns, and I'm delighted to have Lance Legion here with us. You can find him on Twitter, and he has a powerful Substack that features a long series on Julius Caesar, solo podcasts, and conversations. In addition, he also runs a publishing company publishing uh, right-wing books, uh, and I'll make sure to link all of these things. I highly recommend that you check those out. Um, today, we're going to discuss his project, the difference between the Greeks and the Romans, uh, and then two men of power, Agamemnon and Julius Caesar, and the relationship between vitalism and Christianity. Lance, how are you doing? Oh, thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on. And uh, also, uh, you know, I have here uh, Sergeant Barnes in the background. We're just pleased to be here. Um, thank you, Montana College. I know that you've been around the block for a while, and uh, I've been avidly searching you out seeking you out fixating on you i'm really happy that you're uh you're getting out there because um it's very rare that you see people such as you know of your caliber actually kind of putting out knowledge out there that's really necessary nowadays so thank you again well i appreciate your kind words um so then so lance who are you to the extent that you could say some of you know something about yourself and what would you say is the purpose of your project? What is Lance's Legion? So basically, you know, in all seriousness, I come from a military background. I come from a military family. And my experience in the military has been thus. And it's been this case since even before I was in, because, you know, you're around other military families in that culture, and then you're in it, and then you leave it. And it gives you kind of a three-dimensional perspective on things. And um, my appreciation of the American military case um, was really kind of lacking in the sense of, or I thought it was lacking, right? So I think that in America, we have this issue where officers and, and senior enlisted individuals are not trained in the classical ways in which war is prosecuted. So it's not necessarily just about learning about weapon systems, about the employment of or management of troops, or even, um, you know, these kind of petty geopolitical maneuvers in which we kind of pull up Westmoreland from Vietnam, right, where we focus on destroying or degrading, this is the word that they use, attriting the enemy. And uh, we kind of lose sight as to how to win wars. And I think that's something, especially a lot of GWAT veterans have a lot of um, personal experience with where they feel like they won every engagement and somehow lost Afghanistan. And one could arguably say we've lost strategically the interest that we have in Iraq. Um, And then of course, that's been a recurring theme since even world war two. And we, I don't, and to be frank with you, I think we won world war two not necessarily because of the political acumen of our military leaders, but because of the fact that the Soviet Union uh, was actually kind of touching on what exactly 
compels someone to lose because we have a lot of things that we're kind of tying our hands around. So what is Lance's Legion? Lance's Legion is a project which is aimed at educating um, not just the youth, but also military leaders, uh, should they find me, um, on the things that actually are the substance of war, right? Which is actually the political dynamic and, and marrying the technical expertise and uh, we are very technically proficient in waging war, but we are not, how do you say, strategically well-placed. And uh, that's been kind of my personal crusade for the last few years is teaching people how to lead, how to politically orient themselves with both within this country and their duties and philosophy and so on. And also when they're in a combat in a situation, how exactly one must conduct them oneself and deduct, uh, you know, tactical and operational uh, points of, I guess, uh, acquisition or whatever, um, to actually further political the political interests of the United States or wherever country they come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So, <clears throat> could you say a little bit about the substance of war? So you're saying that there's like some sense in which we know how to use our weapon systems, and that you know maybe that does take a decent amount of know-how, but that there's some kind of political knowledge uh, or knowledge about the substance of war that our military case is missing. Could you say a little bit about what that substance is? Yeah, and I hope you don't uh, take it too personally. I'm gonna I'm gonna rant a little bit here just to to give you a perspective because it's more of a it's such a big question that. Um, we're missing such a two layers of foundation. The first of all, of course, comes from the fact that since the Napoleonic Wars, the West, especially the Anglophonic um, uh, sphere, has focused on Clausewitz as the, let's say, the origin point of all military thinking. And um, Clausewitz famously said that none of his books should be published uh, should he not finish it? And he didn't finish it. And of course, I think he's still useful to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but his misreading has led to a number of military thinkers since I would say 1850s and, and onwards um, to believe that political outcomes derived directly from winning conventional battles or you know conventional exchanges. And that's a mistake. And that's part of the reason why I really dislike uh, Clausewitz, not because I dislike the man himself, but because I liked, I dislike the people that ascribe his legacy to themselves or consider themselves Clausewitzians, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I think of all the people in the modern practic- practitioners of war who are able to actually incorporate uh, the technical expertise as well as converting them or living in synergy with the political outcome is actually the communists. Um, And this is true uh, even way before, um, you know, I guess we'd say even the 1920s and onward. And we're seeing this with the rise of the PRC. And um, basically, uh, you know, there's this uh, doctrine called unrestricted warfare. And uh, the names of the authors escape me. But they wrote this shortly after Desert Storm, and it, it kind of elucidated a number of stratagems um, to take on the People's Republics of China, uh, their enemies. And basically, it didn't just hinge on one dynamic, which is the military dynamic, right? It was also incorporating the economic sphere, the uh, 
the propaganda, for instance, of using, you know, uh, like uh, social media and legacy media to push certain pro PRC agendas. Um, in addition to, of course, buying off politicians and a number of other underhanded things. And so obviously in the West, we do these things, but they're all kind of discordant. They're not, they're not all synchronized together um, under one principle of command to get, you know, tangible benefits because it's all kind of ad hoc in the West. We're too, we are too uh, spread out. We're too kind of like uh, uh, decentralized. And the reason why the, the, the Chinese are successful is because they use all these disparate elements to finally, you know, succeed a political victory. And they did this in Vietnam exceptionally well, because even in Vietnam, for instance, I uh, would have arguments with other officers all the time like this, where they say, oh, we killed three million, four million, you know, uh, NVA uh, or, you know, Viet Cong, Vietnamese individuals. Why is it that we didn't win? Well, the reason why we didn't win is because even though they, of course, you know, braved a lot of losses and the vast majority of tactical engagements, we they they lost, um, they were able to win operational and strategic, uh, you know, victory points. If uh, you know, I'm trying to convert this to an audience that doesn't know much about it, but it's just what I'm trying to say is that basically we didn't understand that the military should be involved in what we call civilian affairs, which is to say the political dynamic of all the things that give rise to war, because what is war is just a continuation of politics, as Clausewitz says, but we should be engaged in politics themselves. And politics isn't electioneering. It isn't this kind of abstract official voting BS. What it is, 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 it's uh, you know, it's just like Nietzsche says. It's uh, expropriating, subjugating the will to you know to extirpate entire po populations, or force them, or coerce them, or induce them, and that's the challenge that the United States has. And I mean, Henry Kissinger, he wrote in Diplomacy about America's very strange orientation towards foreign policy that it's not based on real politic. Um, it's based on this crusading ideal that everywhere we go, we must act morally, one, and two, advance the cause of our own cause. So we're crusaders, and that really kind of uh, makes us impotent. It's like fighting a war with both hands behind your back, and your feet are shackled together, and you have to hobble around and try to defeat the opponent who has full faculties, right? And we see that in Africa, for instance, where African nations are turning to the PRC because you know, uh, we put too many stipulations and on aid and the type of aid that we want to give is not the type of aid that the Africans wants to receive. So what ends up happening is that we lose out politically and uh, we, we believe that to be a good and just thing. I mean, this also goes all the way back to the founding of the Republic, where famously there's this weird weird like fixation that the military shouldn't be involved in domestic political stuff and i completely disagree with that i think it should actually be the opposite i think it's that civilians shouldn't be involved in government at all i think that it's uh <laughs> military people alone that are the ones that have the mandate uh and the responsibility and the types of people that get uh for instance there is no bar to uh, you know personal integrity or moral fiber when it comes to um 
you know, voting or politicians being voted into office, but that's very different in the military. I mean, you are not only being selected for competence, but you're also being selected for your moral fiber, for your orientation towards the world. And that's part of the reason why I see America kind of being hollowed out from the, the inside is because we're what we're doing is we're hiring demagogues, but we're hiring no one that's actually a patriot of this country because there is no there is no litmus test there is no there's no sieve if that makes sense and um i think that's true for every country that's primarily democratic and it's par- it's partially the reason why of course that uh democracies both in classical terms and modern ones fail very quickly um and it's my objective so just to bring this full circle it's my objective uh, is threefold is to reeducate the youth and the military leadership um, into a classical understanding of politics and life Two, to save my country, to, to basically revitalize it, rebirth it with a new, new and more clear eyed perspective on the objective, um, more vital. Um, and then third, of course, is to, um, I, I guess what we call white pill, but really is just to motivate, to, to say that, you know, the the most interesting thing about war is that it doesn't matter whether you're outnumbered or outgunned or outthought on the battlefield. He who wins is those is he who has the most will. And we saw that in Afghanistan. We saw that in Vietnam. We saw that in a number of other ex- exchanges that we had. And for me, a lot of my philosophy has been aimed at revitalizing that fire in the hearts of Americans all over. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, so so it seems like part of what you're saying, um, I don't know, that there's a kind of lack of imagination that our military leaders have. And part of that lack of imagination, well, at least in some sense, is like the crusading ideal that seems to animate our foreign policy almost seems to cut against the like awareness that would be required to understand other peoples as they are. Yep. Like to, to sort of say like, oh, we're going to turn like the Afghans into like good Democrats, like ultimately, like this is going to be something we can do that we didn't really understand a, like who they were, what they ultimately wanted, like what, what is animating them to do whatever it is that they do. It's just sort of like, well, we know that our thing is unquestionably good. So if we just hang out there long enough and conduct ourselves well enough while we're like killing some of the people, uh, like they'll eventually just it'll just kind of happen or something. something yeah, like exactly. <laughs> and um, that's the funny thing is that, you know, I guess it, just to quickly say that like, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, we have this weird, so here's the thing that we disagree with communists, right. Or leftists in general is that the left believes that a human being is able to change infinitely in their lifetime. They're tabula rasa, right. They're able to, just be whoever they choose to be by, you know, conviction. And you and I both know that's that's completely false. I mean, mm-hmm. just on a biological level, but also on a psychological level, too. I mean, once you've reached, I think it's like 25, the age of 25, and often often you're, you are who you are by the time you're 18. Mm-hmm. Neuroplasticity really kind of sets you in a certain way. The only way that if, if, if for instance, I were a pinko and we were in charge of the invasion of Afghanistan. We wanted to turn them into good little, 
uh, democratic, whatever, like, uh, let, let, let your, your women like run the house, whatever. I don't give a fuck. Point being is it would take a multi-generational, um, sustained influence to change the nomos of that culture to actually right. reflect the values that you want. And that's something unattainable. And so within the paradigm of Afghanistan, for instance, what are we there for? We were there to get Osama bin Laden to dislodge and, and deny Al-Qaeda from having a rear operating base in their country from the Taliban, which are two disparate organizations, right? And somehow we made a fr- enemy out of someone that we could have been friends with. For instance, the Taliban, they didn't want like to fight us. It was Al-Qaeda that we were after. What we could have done is induce them to give up or to turn on uh, Osama bin Laden or ally with them against them and so on and so forth. And instead, of course, we allied with the Northern Alliance. And these guys are, you know, pedophiles. And it's and that's the, that's the thing is that people don't get is um, uh, the Taliban was actually a Salafist group organized um, in response to this practice of Bashabazi. Um, to basically, you know, <laughs> rein in this kind of excess that's that was happening in their country. That was, by the way, they were vastly popular. Of course, they have to like lay down the hammer as far as jurisprudence is concerned, but they were actually very popular because they were the ones fighting against something so t- terrible. And Americans came in and guess who we were allied with? The people that, you know, we're, we're basically allying with people that were like the most contemptible human beings on earth against the Taliban. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so, and, and this all comes down to the fact that when generals were playing, you know, planning the invasion of Afghanistan <clears throat> in roughly like 2001 and the occupation of that country. And of course, uh, I forgot what they call it, nation building or some lie. Uh, basically, yeah. You know, we didn't take that into account. We only cared about the uh, the like military. Like, okay, how many men do these guys have? How, how you know how well integrated are they into the official political strata of this country, and so on. They didn't care about what the populace felt and had no respect for them. And that's something that like is downstream from a lack of education, a lack of open mindedness to even people that are closed minded, for instance, in our eyes, I guess, or their eyes, you know, the Pinko's eyes is that, you know, okay, maybe, maybe we might hate them, but that's not a reason to overlook what we're trying to gain for the United States. And that's something that's like the major downfall of the American military uh, schooling and thinking since time eternal is that we are not able to do that for whatever reason. I don't know why, but you know, I, 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 I see back to you, the mic. <laughs> well, something else interesting that you had said was that, um, well, the idea that maybe soldiers to some extent are the ultimate citizens or that they deserve, you know, in a way more of a say or more sway over the way that things are. And like, almost like one of the earlier justifications that was almost just sort of accepted out of course, uh, like, why, why wouldn't women be able to vote in the United States at the beginning? And it's because like, they're not soldiers. They're not going to be part of the army. And because that's not a potentiality for them, it's like those who would actually put their lives on the line to secure the nation. Those that really, uh, yeah. Like that. that they had no coercive force. They, they were, they were right. so yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't oh, want yeah, to interrupt. Yeah. So in that sense, it's like, if you are the one who's like securing the nation, it makes a lot of sense to say, you should have more say in it. I mean, I know it's like a weird example to say like Beowulf, like 
at the beginning of that poem, like Shield Chiefson is like the first king uh, that we meet of the Danes. But the reason he's called Shield Chiefson and the reason he's in charge is because he was able to protect his people. And this sort of like that for them is like the principle of like who should rule. Well, who can like protect us from our enemies? Uh, well, that guy. So they're in charge. Um, uh-huh. So the idea, I'm, I'm just intrigued by your like sort of citizen soldier that the soldier really does have more of a right to rule based on the responsibilities that they've taken on. Well, I guess to give you context, I mean, it comes from two different things, right? So when I was a kid, I was a weird kid, and I was reading about politics because I saw the world and I saw how ugly it was and how stupid it was. And so I was looking for answers, and it led me to Samuel P. Huntington. It led me to uh, Francis Fukuyama. And by the way, I have a personal vendetta against Francis Fukuyama. You know how demoralizing it is to read his books at the age of 14, you know, The Last Man? Do you know how it's personal? It's personal. So every time something happens, I yell at him on Twitter. You see, history never ends. But, But the reason why I say this is that so the origins of like even city states, for instance, uh, in ancient Greece, um, all of them were formed around the Acropolis, you know, which is uh, uh, is etym- etymologically or uh, the origin of this word, which is basically fortified place, natural fortified place, and um, of course we're not even talking about the genesis of political entities as such, which is controversial, I guess, uh, in the mainstream because it leads to conclusions which are anathema to, you know, liberals, as, uh, mainstream and like, because um, it kind of undermines this idea of like, you know, I guess a uh, social contract or whatever lame bullshit. But basically, you know, the origins of all states come back to a, an elite. And that elite was always a warrior elite that used coercion to manage, um, you know, the other types of people. Uh, you know, of their varying different uh, professions um, to govern them, orient them towards their own benefit, of course. And, uh, you know, you see that most, I guess, uh, most preserved way in, you know, ancient India in the caste system. But you should transcribe that to, of course, or or transpose that, of course, when you're, I guess, uh, analyzing any kind of uh, political society. So even in Europe, that kind of same caste system existed. Um, and you see that, for instance, in England, where the Normans were the nobles and the people of Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon origin uh, were, generally speaking, the lower castes of people. Um, which is not to say they weren't soldiers, but they weren't officers, and they weren't the primary people that benefited from political order. And so in, in many different ways, I think Nietzsche really hits this on the head and why I'm a huge Nietzsche-boo, um, is because of the fact that like it is um, it dispels all the bullshit, all the lies about um, and my personal uh, annoyance with uh, Plato and Socrates is that you know it's about doing good for blah blah blah. No no no. Nakedly, political power is about benefiting an elite, and the elite. I mean, I'm sure that you know you've read Agamben and like a number of other elite theorists. That is the truth of any country is they are the elite. Whatever the masses are, it doesn't matter. It's the elite. And so I guess this is just to go full circle and explain to people that um, the reason why I choose like the soldiers is not just because I think that they're the most capable and I think they're the ones that are most uh, uh, suited for the job because I feel like that's a matter of course, but also because I think ultimately that's who it belongs to. 
And the issue with the United States is kind of like how things used to be like back in the olden days where like the guy brought home, but he gets back home and like he brought the bread, but he gets henpecked and meat puppeted by his wife. It's kind of like the same dynamic writ large in American society where it's like our safety and political order is guaranteed by the military. But then you come back and first of all, you're, you're treated like crap. And then second of all, you know, it, it's like these people take you for granted and, and, and worse, they, they run the country into the ground, the household into the ground. And I think that's something that I've always noticed in American society that I've been trying to get military men to realize that, like, stop being a eunuch. Like, you've run this shit. Their, their rule only extends as far as you allow it. And I think that's um, a forgotten truth, and it's something I'm trying to resurface to the fore of everyone's minds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so then speaking of <clears throat> that, uh, well, I, I think this connects with what you're saying with the kind of knowledge that you want to impart to military leaders and other uh, young men. Uh, so the, like in the lead up to the conversation, you had mentioned to me that you have a preference for the Romans over the Greeks. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, Roman supremacism? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a huge Roma boo. Actually, like the first book that I read uh, was one of those uh, Discovery, the DK um, series of books about ancient Rome. And I was in love. I, I Ever since I was a kid, I, I imagined myself as Caesar doing the poses and stuff. And and um, I guess that has in no small way to do with my Roma Boonus, you know, and I love I love Latin. I love all that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, in a practical sense, in a prudent sense, and why I harp on them so much and why I don't necessarily uh, give point of uh, place to the Greeks, um, just as BAP does, maybe, uh, is because I think the Romans are more akin to us than we are to the Hellenes. And... I say this even knowing, of course, that the, uh, you know, the Greeks, they weren't monolithic as the Romans were monolithic, right? Like the Greeks, they had all their different types of personalities and all this kind of stuff, but they were all underpinned by a very honest, self-aggrandizing vision, which is, you know, the secret wish to be, a, you know, a, a god amongst men and to exceed all the others and all that kind of stuff that I'm sure our audience and yourself have heard a thousand times over. Um, but I don't think necessarily the Romans felt that way because I think in many ways, the mechanism in the Greeks and the reason why they didn't have, um, you know, basically unified political system up until Alexander was because of this mechanism where they, they throw out tyrants and their unwillingness to, to, keep a certain social stability to further their personal power because they wanted to be the tyrant. And so they always threw them out. And Agathocles, Agathocles, excuse me, uh, is a great example. Um, but, you know, or, or even Timoleon and a number of other different individuals that I'm sure that we were aware of or Lysander. Um, but in Rome, it was very different because the Republican institutions of Rome like it's not the same as the garrisi of the Hellenes and the Americans don't really feel themselves to be the same. in in my view, I think we're also not very, um, I, I don't know whether it's just an Anglo-Saxon extraction or it's because we're very Christian, but we don't really want power for itself. And I think what we want is order and stability 
and uh, prosperity. And I think that's something more akin to the Romans and their their kind of vision of the world as opposed to the Hellenes, which were very kind of um, – they, they focused more on honor and uh, glory and personal, personal victory um, and be damned the world. And I, I admire that a lot, but I think a lot of it has to do with prudence uh, for my love for Romans, and I think it's the closest thing that we could give Americans to emulate that would actually be salubrious to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> myself, I'm like more, I guess, of a Greekophile and I figure like I, I have to learn about Rome at some point, but then there's like, it's almost like the Greek sources are just like so inexhaustible as I suppose the <laughs> Roman ones are themselves. So it's like, I, I kind of got stuck there. Is there any place, do you think there's like a, a best entryway into understanding the Roman vision uh, or yeah, just understanding Rome in general, whether it's a primary source or uh, uh-huh. some other book that you benefited from. You know what the funny thing is? It's like, you know, people say that, and it, there's absolutely right. Nietzsche says that the Greeks put a lot of their effort in the flower and the Romans in the stem. And um, I think the reason why is because the Greeks, the Greeks obviously wrote a lot, and they were willing to combat each other and become competitive in that dynamic, you know, in philosophy and and the Romans were famously a dearth of Roman philosophy. I mean, you know, for instance, Marcus Aurelius, I believe he wrote his meditations in Greek. And mm. um, so did, no, did I, I can't remember if Cicero did it either. But I think that the funny thing is that the men that wrote things as Romans weren't spiritually Roman at all. And bear mm. with me here, but I think what Rome was, was the legions. I think what Rome was, was the martial prudential uh, values, you know, it's Romanitas. And um, if you want to get into what it's like to be a Roman, just go to the military. And like, that's what it's really kind of like. That's what it's more about. And um, all the unwritten, unarticulatable rules and uh, mores that are, that go with that, that I try to explicate through my, you know, through my, my personal Lance's Legion project, I think it's not something you can pick up a book and understand. I think the closest thing perhaps that you can get to, to picking up a book and viewing things from a Roman's perspective was probably Plutarch, who of course was a Greek, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and uh, I think uh, it really goes to show that it's to be Roman is something that's felt to be Greek is something that's conceptualized. And um I mean, maybe I could be wrong because, of course, the the pre-Socratics are the ones who I consider to be the Greeks. The post-Socratics are someone that are more akin to, you know, I guess the Romans really is like this kind of uh, givenness to stoicism and uh, a certain kind of um, stuff, stuff that's kind of actually kind of anathema to the Homeric Greeks, which I'm sure you're aware of. I mean, from my understanding, you're, you're the kind of guy, the, the, the expert to go with this on this question, but that's my stab at it is that to be a Roman is just something that you feel. And that's something you feel in martial culture. I mean, everything in Roman society, even during Republican times uh, was, was, um, was uh, organized off a military basis. I mean, for instance, uh, when they elected officials, it always came from tribes and, and different uh, uh, that were originally military units in the archaic past of the Romans during the time of the, the kings. And uh, that was something that was carried on even into the Senate. 
and it's it's you can see it everywhere in Roman society, in Roman civil society that had its uh, you know I guess parallels in the military society, and that only changed with of course Christianity, and with the uh, reforms of Domitian. And of course, if you go back to the Greeks, it's uh, it's kind of different. It feels like uh, the polis came first, and that military service came as a consequence. If that makes sense, I think the pretensions in Ephesus were different. So I guess that's my kind of stab at it, personally. And it's something I'm always trying to suss out personally myself. It's something that uh, I've been trying to figure out and articulate in words to say, like, you know, this is a graph. This is what it's like to be Roman. This is what it's like to be Greek. But I think you can't really do that. It's something it's felt, you know? Right. That's interesting to say that uh, joining the military might be a better, ultimately a better way to sort of physiologically and psychologically understand what it's like to be a Roman. I mean, that's that's interesting. Um, so, I mean, I, it, it maybe I wonder this what's like, your perspective. What's your perspective on that? Well, maybe this is being too much of a theory cell about it, but I mean, I... <laughs> I'll, you know, freely admit that Plato is the thinker that I'm the most drawn towards. And maybe I have kind of like an idiosyncratic account of this, or, or maybe it's not idiosyncratic. Maybe there are other people who think this too, but, um, but I, I also, I, I kind of wonder if like Socrates emphasis on self-knowledge is a kind of, I don't know, indispensable thing for us today that like, I think we were talking before um, that I guess one of the reasons maybe the reason that I appreciate Bronze Age mindset the most, the most valuable part of that book to me was that I, I sort of thought that I had more or less gotten pretty close to liberating myself from like regime pieties. You know, I thought that I, that by reading Plato, I was kind of free of that, but then all of a sudden I was like blasted into self-knowledge by realizing that there were some passages in Bronze Age mindset that bothered me. And they bothered me precisely because I was more attached to egalitarian moral opinions than I thought that I was. And so to just be blasted like that, I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> the more that you feel that attachment or an awareness that those things really have shaped your soul in ways that are very, very difficult to escape, that I think that like that allows you to do a better job reading either a Greek or a Roman text to try to really see, like understand them as they understand themselves because your awareness of how influenced you are by regime pieties allows you to do a better job not projecting those things onto it because like well maybe just to say one quick thing like leo strauss has a kind of like ironic interpretation of plato's republic like i don't want to go through all of it but but he mm -hmm. sort of says that like plato's not necessarily presenting simply a utopia part of what he's really doing is highlighting certain fundamental or permanent problems that show why you're more or less unlikely ever to have a utopia like that mm -hmm. but then people uh almost like you could say like they say like okay so plato doesn't say exactly what he means and so they use that almost like as an excuse to then say like oh but plato likes what we like you know men and women are equal like look uh, men and women are guardians therefore men and women are the same and you know things like this but that's obviously not true and i don't think plato thinks that either and i don't know so uh, so there's like a way in which like strauss provides this like indispensable i think pathway back into understanding the greeks at the same time that there are these like hidden obstacles that if you haven't actually taken socrates exhortation to find self-knowledge with the absolute rigor that's required, then you'll just like project still like exactly what you want onto those books. So I'm sort of like vaguely hopeful that the more attentive one is to one's own moral opinions, the better job you'll do uncovering these like alien opinions to some extent um, mm -hmm. and trying to like really understand them. 
So as contrast, basically, it serves as contrast. And I, I guess you're right, and I think that's the the major fault or the fault in uh, the archaic Greeks' eyes is, or you know, their stars, I guess, is that the reason why the Socratics were so successful is because it gave a telos, you know, a reason why. And I think that um, you know the the archaic Greeks didn't. They didn't. I think they just wanted to compete and whatever form that may take, they were willing to affirm it so long as it was aggrandizing themselves. And you saw this with, of course, the sophists and the, the willingness to kind of uh, do casuistry just to win renown for themselves. Um, mm. And I personally, I hate the cynics and I hate the Epicureans so much. You have no idea, but <laughs> no, but, but no, but in all seriousness though, I, I kind of see what you're saying. And um, I think there is a utility to Plato Um and I'm sure constant, you know, Dr. Alamaru came out with a uh, his thesis that was published recently, uh, which is actually pretty interesting in, in talking about the role of Plato and maybe as a kind of esoteric justification uh, post hoc of tyranny, because it was basically a uh, propaganda type self-justification uh, for for their rule in the same way that Christians, for instance, uh, and I, I hope this is not blasphemous. So please take you know this with a pinch of salt. What I'm trying to say is that um, the you know the divine right of kings um, had a whole philosophy and political underpinning to cement the rule over the people, um, because these things do have an effect. Ideas and words do have an effect. And I think this is where I disagree with BAP is that I think that you know thoughts matter, ideas matter, words matter. And I think that they kind of serve as a buttress to in, in the service of one form of life or another. The The challenge that we've been facing over the last 2000 years, of course, has been that the overwhelming body of philosophy uh, has been in service of the helot, of the service of the lowliest, of equality and so on. And I think you're absolutely right that the, the Plato, I think that Strassian reading is probably accurate, personally, um, and, and take that with a grain of salt because I'm not well read in Strauss, and I think I should get into it. But um, it does seem to me that uh, you know it's it's you know when you build a house, you have a blueprint. You know what a philosophy is is a blueprint for a society, and of course, it's also highlighting what are some negative externalities that you need to uh, address to form a more perfect union. And uh, so it's kind of weird because I kind of halfway between, I think it's physiological, the the, the challenge is physiological as well as uh, philosophical. You know what I mean? And uh, I think uh, when we, you know, you're talking about how to rediscover the, the spirit of the Greeks or rediscover the spirit of the Romans. I say that, you know, to rediscover what it meant to be a Roman, you'd have to join the military, which was which is different, of course, from one-on-one -on -one combat, um, you know, wrestling or or jujitsu or whatever MMA. And the difference is, of course, in the military, the emphasis is on the team. The team is what you know accretes the individual, and vice versa. Whereas in the Greek times, uh, the focus was on the agon. And I had a whole kind of podcast about this. And if you don't want to listen to me blather on about it too long, uh, I'll just leave it at the fact that the Greeks saw themselves in a more individuated way than I think the Romans did. And I think the point 
the character that kind of most stands out to me is Alcibiades, right? Who was willing to forsake, you know, his homeland, his home city for his personal glory, for his personal accruement accrual because it was about his personal greatness and i think there's nothing wrong with that i think in in america we could we could do something from the manly uh, you know self-perception we could be honest about wanting to be great personally but i think there's something good about the romans in that um for instance even augustus saw himself as first citizen you know to be part of something be part of a patria be part of a team and I believe in teams. I think that's that's something I really like. Is I'm a very gregarious individual, and so, um, you, you know, what's the point of being victor if you have no audience? What's the point of you know conquering a city if you have no no one to share the spoils with? And I think that's the the difference between the Greek and the Roman is that one was the team, and the the latter was, of course, the individual competitor, the man in the arena. Right. There was a lot to say. I mean, maybe maybe I'll just like say two things before we move on, and then you should obviously add in whatever you want before we move to talking about a great man of power, Agamemnon. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, as far as like the individuation or like the individual, there's like like in the Iliad when Diomedes goes on his like Aristai, his moment of excellence. There's like the simile uh, that compares him to a torrent of water, you know, going down a mountain. And he sort of is killing both Trojans and Greeks at that moment. Like nobody could tell what side Diomedes was on, but like nobody upbraids him. Nobody's like, dude, Diomedes, you killed some of our guys. What the hell's wrong with you? (laughs) Instead, it's like, he kind of has prominence. And like, you know, in the later discussions, he's willing to like in book nine, like shout at Agamemnon when he says again, like, you know, maybe we should go home. And then, you know, Diomedes calls the leader of the Achaeans a coward, you know, right to his face. So I don't know. There's, there's definitely something to that. And, and your question about the audience just made me think about one other thing with respect to Socrates. Um, is it like in Plato's Symposium, like this guy, Agathon, he's just won the prize for having the best tragedy. And he really wants Socrates to be there. And Socrates does go there, uh, but he kind of like mogs him, you know, and just really kind of humiliates him in the sense that like, he's like, look, you like this honor, this recognition, this gratitude from sort of like the the many. Like you like that they're, you like the number of people who are clapping, but what matters more if the wise, the few are clapping or if the many are clapping and mm-hmm. Agamemnon's kind of like, well, I guess I probably would like, you know, higher quality human beings to be the ones who approve of me. And so in some ways, it's almost like Socrates is saying, you're living your life so that this like indiscriminate, you know, just faceless, nameless people that they care about what you do. Yeah. But shouldn't you really only care about what the most outstanding human beings think? And there's like this line in the Crito when uh, Socrates says something to the effect of like Crito, the many will never be able to you know explain like why you did what you did or like why you know I didn't escape from prison, but good men will already know why things were done as they were done. Exactly. Uh-huh. No, and and I love this because I, this is one of the reasons why I I love the Greeks. I love both of them. You know, obviously I'm a huge classical fan. And I think there is truth in that, the hoi polloi, the rabble, and we see that we're giving too much credence and value to the feelings of the average and the mediocre. And we wonder why we're becoming mediocre ourselves. And uh, you see that in media, you see that in every walk of life that basically, if you're looking for a bunch of, um, uh, you know, they're not even living really. They're just bugs. They're just people allegedly. 
and what what they give value to is so menial it is actually kind of demoralizing to be frank with you like there's something really demoralizing about having the uh the positive appraisal of a people of a, of a mass because what do the masses know you know they're just a foundation it's just like the pharaohs of egypt like they're they're more kin to cattle than people right and i think that's something beautiful that the the hellenes really are the kings of aristocracy because they value to have their worth be known, not appraised, but be known by other great men. Uh, be damned, you know, <laughs> the the slaves and the, uh, you know, the average people or whatever. That's ridiculous. You know what I mean? And I think uh, that's that is truly beautiful. And, you know, I, I guess in, in Rome, there isn't something so similar. I mean, of course, there is that culture of triumphs and even wealthy merchants having uh, uh triumphs uh, are uh, what's it called uh triumphal arches built in their honor um but it's not the same it's really not the same at all and uh, i think that's something that the greeks there is a synthesis i think there is out there that um we should imbibe from both cultures and the reason why i, I harp or overcorrect for the romans is because uh you know um my secret, my secret design is to best even Bap himself one day. You hear me, Bap? I'm coming for you. No, but seriously though, I think that uh, it should be both camps. You should, you should try to imbibe both spirits into yourself. Learn what is useful, cast out what is not useful, and even and keep what we have learned since then as well. Because it's not just the ancients that were great. There are many men since the ancients that have been great too, and that we should learn in their image and example. Right. Good. So then let's talk uh, about uh, a Greek man and then a Roman man. Uh -huh. So let's, you, you had a tweet recently where you said, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but something to the effect of like Agamemnon is the best of the Greeks, not simply good, but the best. And maybe that's just right. I'll say one quick word about why people would, you know, think that's crazy. Um, and I'll die on this hill, by the way, I'll die on this hill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look, many, many think that, uh, Agamemnon at best is a fool and at worst is a blundering, evil, cowardly, selfish fool. Um, mm -hmm. and, they, and they think this, you know, because like he took away the prize from Achilles, the best warrior, and this mm -hmm. leads to the death of countless Achaeans. And it seems like that didn't have to happen. In addition to like his book two scene where like Zeus sends a dream to him that says he should attack right away. And then he goes out and tells his men, all right, men, uh, we're not going to win the war. You need to go home. And then all the men are like, oh, shit, I guess we're going to go home. And then and then Odysseus, with Athena's help, kind of rallies them, and then they come back to assembly, and then they get ready to fight. And so a lot of people think that that's just a bizarre blunder. Now, I think I think there's things to be said that can save Agamemnon's reputation. So let's let's rehabilitate this. What do you, what do you think about uh, Agamemnon? Why no, is I'm going to address this first, this last point that you said. For instance, of course, the vision of Zeus, and he does the opposite of what God commands him to do. It's mm -hmm. this is a very character characteristically Greek thing to do, uh, which is to try and best the gods themselves. And that's the thing is that um, and also you have to remember, of course, that when Homer was writing, he was writing to glorify the warriors. And there's something very good about that. All the warriors on both sides. And that's something I want to do, especially just as an aside uh, for you veterans out there. I want to write. I want to sing your song of glory. So please DM me if you have any personal stories. I'm writing a uh, omnibus of different uh, war stories, garrison stories, whatever. Um, I want to sing your glory. It's important to record it. But returning to the mm -hmm. Greeks, 
the issue that I have, or rather the esoteric reading of this, is that Agamemnon wanted to conquer the world for his own aggrandizement. He wanted to become Zeus. He is a Zeus-like figure amongst the mortals, right? And I think, you know, <laughs> he said he makes a lot of blunders. He's called a coward. And, you know, that is maybe on a couple of different occasions. But, I mean, if you're a human being, I mean, you feel fear. Everyone feels fear. It's what you do with that fear, right? And um, I think that Agamemnon is a man of visionary power, who before him, there were no great kings like him who had such great visions. He was an Alexander of his time. And I think, you know, uh, in the Trojan War specifically, uh, he, he, he was able to herd cats, which are like the Greeks who are constantly defying him, constantly jockeying for position, for supremacy, constantly trying to undermine his authority. And for instance, he famously cucks at Achilles, uh, taking his war bride. That's not like an evil thing. That's actually um, to take Achilles a peg, a, you know, pe take him down a peg. It's to put him in his place, to put him under his control, under his command, uh, to make him known to not just Achilles, but if if Agamemnon can belittle even the greatest among them, who who is anyone else to him? And um, I think my greatest thesis and why Agamemnon was the greatest in the Iliad is because he's the one that set in motion all the events that were foretold. Um, and of course, the gods had a lot to do with this. However, I would say this is that it was, it was Agamemnon that was able to um, rally and unify the Achaeans into one great coalition. And remember, back then, that was very difficult because there were a bunch of feudal lords, right? It's not like uh, one delineated chain of command, he could say like, all right, all the cities of Greece, we will mobilize and march on Troy. That's not how it really went. He kind of had to finagle and he had to maneuver politically and get them to actually furnish the men, the ships. And it's a very expensive and difficult endeavor to do. And he did it. He was the first. And it was because of him that the stage could be set for the events of the Iliad. It was because of him that the glory of Ajax, of Diomedes, of Achilles, Patroclus, Hector, and so on, it was because of him that they had a stage and their glory. And so for me, not only did he personally have glory of his own, which could be attributed to his personal self having achieved, but by proxy, all the glory that was contained within the Iliad is his to claim as well. And he's also a tragic figure. I mean, he, it's not like he um, rode off uh, high on the hog. You know, he's not like some distant king. He had to sacrifice a lot. He sacrificed his own daughter to the enterprise. He's a tragic figure himself. He, uh, he attained conquest of the known world, right? Um, and died in the city. And so like, I think people don't give him value because, especially because most people don't read the Iliad. Most people just watch Troy and think that's their really real foretelling of uh, the events back then. But if you can see things from a man of power's perspective, how difficult it is to lead, even in a modern military setting where people are compelled to, to, to like follow you. And also modern man is far more biddable a dog than, um, you know, the ancient Greeks were, I think what he achieved was truly great. 
And um, of course, the Iliad has is replete with examples of how he's a coward and how he's an idiot or whatever. But I think really hidden behind all that is a mountain of glory. And I think it's because of him that Agamemnon was carved in the stone of our hearts. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I love him for that. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe I'll add a little bit more evidence. I mean, this is this is pretty helpful because like in my lectures in book one or two of the Iliad, I tried to rehabilitate Agamemnon some, but I think you have gone farther, but with like pretty, pretty helpful evidence, I would say. Um, so, I mean, for one thing, like when, well, I think you started with this, which is to say he's the leader of the combined Achaean forces. Like in book two, uh, you know, we learn he's got the most ships. Um, he even gives like 60 ships to another people to like transport their troops. So you he really does have like an overwhelming kind of, I think, I forgot if it's like he has like a sixth of the ships or something like that. But um, so then two, uh, so I think because he's the leader where we ought to, you know, provide that should, that's grounds for us to offer a charitable reading or give a charitable reading of him. When Athena stops Achilles from killing him after he takes his prize, uh, Athena, instead of like saying like, oh yeah, Agamemnon's a bad guy or something like that, or you're so justified Achilles, she says, uh, Hera loves both you and Agamemnon equally. So it's like she doesn't come down and say like, oh yeah, Achilles, this is okay. Um, and I don't know, I think to go to your point about the dream, it is kind of striking that at least at the beginning of the book, there's a sort of consistent pattern of Agamemnon not caring about divine providence or maybe not even believing in it in the sense that like when the priest of Apollo, uh, when he refuses to give his daughter back, it's like he really doesn't think that Apollo is going to do anything about it where, you know, he's like, you know, I'll kill you, you know, says to the priest and the priest has to like run away. And only once he's like a safe distance away, is he able to pray to Apollo, which means that the priest in that moment didn't even believe that Apollo was going to protect him from being struck down. He had to himself get far enough away. So, so Agamemnon doesn't believe that he doesn't seem to believe the dream and to take it even farther to some extent. Um, they attack. I think, that, yes, yes. They attack. Um, <laughs> to take it farther, I guess you could almost like say when he tells the men like, well, Zeus lied to us, that I wonder if he's trying to liberate them from concern with like prophecies and things like that. Like, let's just, you know, use our own arms, stop worrying about prophecies, stop worrying about these kinds of things. And like, because I think the Achaeans are much more powerful than the Trojans are. They've mm -hmm. taken like 23 of their cities uh, before this. And even like when Hector and Ajax fight, Ajax gets the best of him, uh, like both of the times that they sort of come to blows. And that makes me think that like, so the second best of the Achaeans is better than the best of the Trojans. Um, and maybe Diomedes also could have, you know, done well there, but we don't know. But, right. but anyway, yeah, these are some, uh, I guess like pro Agamemnon things that I think start to recover him from, or like to add on to what you're saying. Agamemnon occupied government. No, I, I would say this is that like, People just don't give him glory or honor because I think uh, we're just conditioned. I mean, also, it's you have to remember our audience. It's a bunch of young men. Young men don't like uh, stuffy old generals telling them what to do or, you know, stuffy old kings getting all the glory of their hard-earned sweat. And you see this, of course, and even in the real military where, like, uh, enlisted and lower officers always feel personally uh you know, spite, you know, personal spite against the, the commanding officer. And in a lot of ways, it's a love-hate relationship um, because of the fact that they feel like they earned it. However, I mean, if we can go back to, I mean, forward in time to Napoleon, uh, you know, this is the thing that I think people really don't get is that uh, BAP wants to go to a time 
where there is technology which makes the individual strong and that skill alone uh, can cause someone to be powerful, like, you know, one-on-one duels and all that kind of stuff. And there's something romantic and beautiful about that. But I believe that the truth is that the superhuman, the superhuman power that we have that permanences through time is leadership because it's a good leader that can make a bad team good and a bad leader that can make a great team terrible. And we see that with Priam, for instance. I mean, Priam, if he had been half the king or half the war leader, would have been able to resist the Achaeans on multiple levels, even before they had like landed on the shores of, of um, you know Anatolia. But he didn't. And I think these are things that are subtext or even just implicated, of course, in the events of the Iliad. Um, but are never articulated by Homer specifically because Homer's agenda is what you know, obviously to honor the 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 smaller uh, agents of that fight. You know, it's not it's not like the rest of Bronze Age literature, which is um, mainly focused on the great kings. You know, the Assyrian or Babylonian emperors or kings. You know god kings uh making battle upon each other um he's trying to give pride of place to to the middle management if that makes sense you know to to achilles and the the great soldiers there and i think that's great and it's important but i think it's also important to realize that agamemnon he bears a lot of responsibility for the greatness of his subordinates and his enemy so i don't know i think i kind of leave it there that's that's really wild down this hill and i know i'm gonna get a lot of heat for it i've already gotten a lot of heat for it before but i'm gonna keep on i'm gonna stick to my guns stick to my hopla uh, hoplon you know yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so then maybe we can talk about another leader who's a great inspirer of men um Mm -hmm. julius caesar when i was reading like plutarch's life of caesar there's like one part where it just talks about how well i guess multiple times that like his men, like the common man on the battlefield would just try to do heroic exploits. Like a guy gets his hand cut off yeah. and he like still fights everybody off of the ship. You know, somebody else with like a, like a spear in them, arrows in them. Like there's, they're still fighting to the death or, or like when they get ambushed uh, by a German tribe and uh, they see Caesar fighting himself. Um, and this, like all of a sudden, like the 10th Legion is just like, we have to get to Caesar. Um, and Plutarch seems to say like, if Caesar hadn't set that bold example, it's, it's likely that maybe all the Romans there could have died. Um, mm-hmm. so one man inspires like, you know, thousands of others to do things that they might not have ever done on their own. So you've done a lot of work, um, on Julius Caesar. So I guess I was just wondering if you could tell us about a few of your favorite moments. You, you have kind of like a continual series where you're always writing about Caesar. Um, right. So uh, just to give background, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm writing a series called Caesar Valator, which is just Caesar the Warfighter. And it's specifically focusing on his, um, uh, I guess, his his adventure in Gaul. I'm not going to write about the Civil War or uh, the following Alexandrian War, uh, because I think that it was Gaul that really made Caesar. And I think there's already enough, and it would get monotonous after that. But Point being is, um, I write that because he's such a great leader, and there are so many instances of of uh, personal guile and fortitude under pressure, of intrepidity of spirit, um, and, and boldness that I think even modern leaders could learn from. Practical things too, uh, setting the example, um, making uh, prudent, wise justice uh, judgments uh, on the battlefield or on the campaign on the operational level. But 
I'm a firm believer in leadership. I mean, like, uh, I think Jocko Willink really kind of made me an uh, acolyte of this and in the military, in the Marine Corps, like it really focuses on leadership as well. Um, because as you can see on a number of different uh, encounters with the Gauls, uh, the, the, <laughs> the balance, the balance of victory was won by the leader of whatever column more often than not. And it's part of the reason why Vercingetorix gets such an important mention as opposed to the various other, you know, Gallic leaders is because of how capable he was as a commander to make the unruly Gauls who were technologically the inferior of the Romans uh, to give them a run for their money. Um, and they were very unruly too. Um, you know, say what you want about Celts, you know, they're a bunch of basically Irishmen. So what I would say is this, is that there are a couple of different instances. So for instance, when um, Caesar reached and was destroying or subjugating the Gallic tribes in what is modern day Brittany, he actually came into contact with, of course, the Atlantic Ocean. For those of you that don't know, the Atlantic Ocean is a total different beast than the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is very calm, chill. It, it's very forgiving, especially when it comes to um, you know, uh, naval architecture of boats and so on. And so the Romans had no personal experience with navigation in that area or even, for instance, furnishing uh, ships that would actually be warfighting ships on top of just being ships alone um, to counter the power of this Gallic tribe, which was actually very powerful because of the fact that whenever the Romans would march up with their legions, all they got to do is hop in their boats and then fuck off to a place that they could go to a, like a cliff side uh, fort that was unapproachable by land. And so one of the ingenuity and one of the greatest things I love about the Romans is that they were able to learn quickly and implement the innovation quickly as well. It's kind of like when during the Punic War, the Romans had absolutely sub-zero navy. They had one Carthaginian ship uh, wash up on shore and they made just a shit ton of copies of it. And then they beat the Carthaginians at their own game. Um, a similar thing happened with, of course, under the direction of Caesar, uh, the, uh, the Gallic design for ships in the Atlantic, uh, the hooks that were innovated by the Romans, which were very unique and superior to the Gaul, the Gauls, and to draw them in and basically destroy them at sea, right where they were like at their center of gravity. And that's a beautiful time. But I think the most impactful and crazy moment I remember from Caesar, which I admire him the most for, which is probably kind of goes under the radar is when the Germans invade into Gaul early in book four or five. And basically the Germans are hearing that the Gauls are getting their ass kicked and the Gauls are asking for help. And so the German mercenaries come over and they start raiding and pillaging. And of course they're very competent horsemen and warriors, born warriors themselves, um, even the superior of Gauls themselves. And uh, Caesar destroys them. And so what they do is they retreat over the river Rhone. And they believe that this impenetrable barrier, because this river is like a raging torrent, it is difficult, it is deep, it is fast, it is treacherous. So it's it's not something that you can readily bridge, right? And the way that the Germans and the locals would go back and forth over the river were in little dinghies or rafts. And uh, the thing is, when you're in a military setting, small elements crossing a river are very easy to interdict. You can defeat in detail small landing you know, parties. And so what he did is this, he sent his 
uh, cavalry. I think it was like 50 miles up the river in a crossing that was uh, able to be crossed by by horsemen. Um, and then he sees the bridgehead, and the the you know the Germans were just waiting because they're like, ah, oh, what are we going to do? We're just going to coalesce our forces. We're going to throw this, these horsemen back into the river. It's going to be no big deal. And slowly but surely, the legions arrive on the river, and through engineering prowess and you know obviously intrepidity of spirit. Caesar made these men build a, a bridge overnight and in just such terror of the ability of the Romans to you know rise to the occasion of any obstacle cross this crazy river with a big bridge wide enough to have 10 ranks walk abreast walk in formation and land on the other side in battle array through the Germans into such uh, despair and panic that they didn't even offer battle; they just offered truce, and that to me is the most beautiful—I don't know—glory that you could ever have is to win without even having let a sword fall on the neck of the enemy. That's just something I love about Caesar, and that's that's that, that's what he would continue to do throughout his campaigns. He would make the impossible possible. He would levy the spirits of his men when they were waning. He would suffer all the the hardship his average soldier felt. And for those of you that don't know, officers in general have this bad habit if they don't hold themselves true to having a little bit of extra food, a little bit extra lenience, a little bit less discipline. They're like very, uh, especially in um, uh, French armies, for instance, the nobles were very much on a picnic holiday, whereas the uh, average man soldier got fucked. And that's some, something Caesar never did. He was always starving with his men when his men starved. He was always fighting with his men when his men were fighting. He was always on watch. He would go on watch and he would go to the posts and make sure his men were on duty, leavening their spirits. That's what it means to be a great leader. And I think why I admire him so much, because if you were ever in the military, uh, sleep deprivation is a silent killer. I mean, it's not even just a, a killer outright in the sense that you're kind of groggy, but it's actually a cognitive killer you can cause yourself brain damage if you're sleep deprived enough and you can become stupid and the thing is uh, caesar was such a great man of provenance and genius that no matter the hardship or the malnutrition or the endless nights staying up he had the energy and the fortitude to see pass through any conflict and uh have a a victorious outcome towards it. I think he wasn't defeated in a single battle yet, or at least to our knowledge. You know, I mean, he would always ascribe any defeats or tactical defeats to a lesser commander, which is not so great. But in the terms of propaganda, which is why he was writing, you know, the the, the Gallic Wars, it's important. You know, so it's a give and take. But I love Caesar. So all the things that I've said about Caesar and his glory and stuff like that, I think it's important for you, the audience, and of course Montana. I would say this. He was a uh, philohellene himself. He was he you know went to school in Greece and uh, learned from the philosophers there and went to Bithynia and so on. And he took a lot of his inspiration from the Iliad. He took a lot of inspiration from the Greeks, and he took that greatness of soul and vision and transposed it into his time. Which for us we might. We're so far in the future where we believe that these two phenomena, the Romans and the Greeks, to be one and the same thing, but they're not. You have to remember when Caesar was alive, he was writing almost half a, a millennia 
apart from the events of uh, the the Peloponnesian War, and almost a millennia total from the events of the Iliad. And the, he was definitely not in contact with the uh, archaic Greeks. However, what he did was dip his, I guess, soul into the well of the Greeks, and he poured it into his contemporary time and made it manifest. And I think that's why I really want Americans and moderns to read the ancients, because a lot of greatness can be dredged up from the past. I think I think that's the wrong term, but can be, I don't know, pulled from the past and transposed into our present because it can revitalize the present drawing on from this inspiration from the past. And it's, it, I think it is in no small part that it was the Greeks that inspired and animated Caesar to be great than anyone else. And I think that's something that we can learn, especially here at Lance's Legion, and I'm sure at your classical college. Yes, this is true. Wow, that's a powerful account of Caesar. Um, I really want to read the Gallic Wars. I mean, reading reading just the Plutarch's life, uh, I'd read it before, but uh, I got a lot more out of it this time. So yeah, that's, that's great. So maybe, in, and you're already starting to draw the conversation kind of full circle, kind of bringing it back to today and about what kind of approximation of like the ancient disposition is possible, like in our own time. Um, so, and, and maybe I think a way that we could talk about this is you on one of your podcast episodes had discussed with one of our mutuals, ancient gardener, um, in a really interesting conversation, you had talked about a kind of the, or the possibility of a vitalist slash Christian synthesis or the question of like how well the, you know, best of the vitalists and the Christians can get along as far as accomplishing things. Um, and so I guess like at the deepest level, uh, it seems like it's hard for there to be a full, full synthesis at like a, the deepest theoretical level. Cause it seems like from a Christian perspective, vitalism is a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a prideful self-assertion that God's word is not a requirement for living well. And that in all likelihood, all vitalists will go to hell for eternity. <laughs> so, you know, vitalists like, aren't living a life of loving obedience for their creator. Um, they're not submitting their will to God's will. But mm -hmm. I think there are some really, really interesting similarities. Um, and maybe I'll just share one kind of underlying similarity that I see. And then maybe you can tell me what you think about this and your own like just general thoughts on it. Um, is that I wonder if like a, an underlying similarity of both vitalism is in Christianity is that at their peaks uh, or within the human beings that embody them best, there's a contempt for death and for mere life. Mm -hmm. um, and this attitude is something that grants a special kind of freedom that's not available to others. Like mm -hmm. the best vitalists and the best Christian will never become slaves because in the case of the vitalists, they want to die beautifully. Um, and in the case of the martyr, uh, you know, they're willing to suffer, you know, for the like, truth. pretty serious. What's that? For the truth, right? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the, the truth. And I think, you know, you're, you're, you, you touch on something that's, um, you know, obviously Nietzsche has his gripes with the Christians of his time. However, it's important to draw a delineation right? Uh, Christianity is not this monolithic event. It is truly a multifaceted ethos. And uh, a characteristic of any religion is that it has to be living. It has to be lived. And um, to be frank with you, and maybe this is extremely blasphemous, so you know, cover your ears if you really don't like what I'm going to say less, but God loves those who tempt him. God loves those who rise up and defy him and then are repented and 
you know, basically fall in love with God and Jesus and so on. And I guess the best example of which would be Constantine, a lifelong pagan who conquered, who was a man, who was a licentious man personally, full of avarice and pride and all the things that we'd assume to be more in line with the pagans, but ultimately came to Jesus, you know, had a coming to Jesus moment at the end of his life and, and converted and uh, used and suborned the Roman Empire for the glory of God. It, without the Roman Empire, where would be where would Christianity be? You know, it would be nowhere. And um, I think that's something people really take for granted. And um, basically, that's something we were discussing before we even jumped on here in this transmission, is that you can't be a Christian without having blood in your veins. And having blood in your veins and part of being a, f- a human being, which is to say a fallen individual, is to have faults. But it's also about how do you say it's about becoming one with Jesus again. It's one with God again. It's a apotheosis. You can't do that. If you've never done anything, you can't do that if you're dead. And, uh, that's something I think, uh, you know, these leftist Christians never understand is that they never lived first to be worthy of repentance in the first place. And so that's something that I think that like Christians could really draw on is that, it's worth sinning so that way you could come with God, if that makes sense. And I know that sounds kind of like a, a really uh, Gnostic interpretation of the situation, but I don't think God really loves those that never did anything. I think he loves those that repent, that sinned greatly and repented with true heart, with a, with a true conviction. And I think Constantine is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, had written something about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it seemed like in that book, like you, you can kind of compare it to Beowulf in some sense, but like there's these parts where Sir Gawain fights monsters on his way to the Green Knight's uh, chapel. But the narrator more or less says something to the effect of, but this isn't really important for the story. So I'm not going to like dwell on it for very long. And so those parts are like minimized and the parts that are maximized or given the most attention to are these like temptation scenes where this woman, it's it's kind of contrived. Like she's not actually trying to tempt him because of her lust, but rather because the Green Knight has kind of like set up this un, like a, a kind of challenge for Gawain that he's unaware of. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, he's able to avoid the sexual temptations, but then he gives into this temptation that gives him a green belt that's supposed to make him invincible. And part of what he's doing is like the Green Knight at the beginning of the book says, you can like hit me with this ax as long as I can hit you with the ax in a year. Gawain cuts his head off. The guy picks up his head and the, and the head speaks to him and says, I'll see you in a year. And so <laughs> Gawain is like, he he's tempted into like living not in accordance with his promises. Like, I know you've like talked about this before and others talk about it with Nietzsche of like this. One of the good things about Christianity maybe is this deepening of the human being and this like capacity to make promises that this is a unique feature of human life that comes into being. But Gawain can't quite keep his promise um, and he takes the belt. And I had said something like that the book kind of presents the resisting temptation as the highest human possibility and keeping promises as this like greatest act that you can do. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. somebody, I think uh, a priest of some kind had commented on it uh, that he thought something along the lines of what you were proposing was actually true. It's rather that the fact that Gawain 
repents at the end and that he, he feels shame over what he had done and that it's not that Gawain's perfect or something like that, or that you could always resist temptation, but rather this kind of realizing redemption wrong and seeking forgiveness for the sake of redemption. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's the interesting thing is that, uh, I mean, that's the, the great thing about Christianity is that life, we don't see it this way because we live in a bourgeois world where everything is very, mechanistic and uh very predictable and you know everything seems to be working along certain lines if you do x y is the outcome but that's not the case life isn't that way life a lot of the time is it's chaos it's war and uh plans don't go according to you know how they were written out and ultimately uh the importance is for a warrior or for anyone is is basically facing whatever odds. And um, I think there's this part in Monte Cristo where basically uh, the count is telling his son, he says, um, life is a storm. My young friend, Um, you know, basically the gods will smile on you on one day and cast you on the rocks. The next, Uh, what makes you a man is to be able to say, do your worst and I'll do mine. And so I think in this case of the soul, in the spirit is to live with integrity, to live true to your ideals, no matter what happens, whether or not you're, you know, run out of a job, whether or not you're persecuted, sent to prison for, you know, personal convictions that you hold to be right and just, whether or not you're persecuted as a Christian and you're, you're basically killed and you're martyred or as a warrior where you carry out orders and it results in your death. I think there's something beautiful in holding true to the mission, having integrity, don't sell your soul for 30 pieces of silver. And I think that's something that we could really draw on. And that's the synthesis where I think the Greeks didn't have that, especially in Alcibiades, for instance, or or even um, Agathocles. You know, these people, they were perfidious. Um, they were pernicious. You know, they, they basically were oath breakers all the time and they didn't care. And it, it funny because Machiavelli talks about Agath- Agathocles in which he says that he's not worthy of being ascribed for two because of the fact that he won, he won his glory by means of deception and cowardice and lack of integrity. And I think that's a recurring theme and why the Christians became so popular when they did is because it matters what you believe. It matters to have integrity. It matters what you fucking say and that you follow through with it, come what may. And I think um, people, either you're pagan and you're tarred and you're like, you have to completely dispel everything Christianity ever did because evil or vice versa, where Christians think that pagans are obviously evil and they have nothing to impart on them. I think this is a false dichotomy. I think this is a false opposition. I think the truth is that even though there is conflicts, it's, it's probably because of these conflicting animuses that we have within ourselves, the, the, the pagan European and the Christian, that it foists us to greatness. It's probably the engine. It's that internal tension that makes us great. It's part of the reason why we are constantly fighting ourselves and fighting the world because we're trying to reconcile these two things that are are irreconcilable and in a good way, in a salubrious way. And, uh, you know, I talked to ancient about this before in depth, um, at length. And of course, I think you should listen to it. However, um, if I could leave one thing 
before I, you know, I guess we kind of move on to the next topic is I would say this, we don't have a fight with each other in so much as we have a fight with ourselves every day. The greatest enemy that you have is that little bitch inside of you that either wants you to be weak, wants you to have lack of integrity, to take the easy way out, to have lack of discipline. Um, And I think that both of these elements, the Greeks and the Christians, they are the reason why we will figure it out in the end. And I'll leave it there. Yeah, that's helpful. And this is kind of something interesting that's come up in maybe a couple of the conversations that I've had, like um, with William Wheelwright, he had kind of talked about building a kind of agricultural school in a way for boys, training them to be warriors and sort of like learning how to be self-sufficient within nature. But in that sense, it's like sort of pointing towards a kind of like, you know, building what, what needs to be done to build a right wing counter elite so that there's like this farming school. And then my friend space age maximalist had talked about sort of like uh, engineering aristocracy, like somehow like the engineer class <laughs> needs to have this like greater understanding of things. Like the, if the, the people who know how to build things, need to know other things too. Like they could be a sort of like leadership cast in the future or something. And then now you have been talking about a possible kind of officer or warrior class that takes more responsibility does, you know, uh, become the citizens of the United States, so to speak, or the true citizens. And, mm-hmm. and then to bring that to what you're just like saying now, it does seem like there's gotta be some kind of like pragmatic coalition of like Christian men and vitalist men and, you know, other various groups because, you know, the, the stuff that's arrayed against beauty and excellence, there's just so much of it. Mm-hmm. So like anybody who, you know, loves the truth with all their heart and has some kind of fire burning within them to maintain and, you know, expand the conditions or the spaces in which the truth can be said. Um, like there has to be some way that they can come together without some sort of weird purity spiraling or, you know, something like that. Like, uh, right. Yes. And I, I think, uh, this is where a lot of coalitions break down is the lack of pragmatism. And I think, uh, you know, why the military is so important is because you come into contact with people that are the polar opposites of you. And yet somehow you have to find out how to make a team together and work towards a common goal while still respect is too strong a word while still allowing for differences in opinion. And um, in our time, in modern times, uh, the way that the left has basically, how do you say this? The way that they have made this or or addressed this is basically either going on the one end being anarchy or libertarianism, which is the individual, the emphasis on the individual or the collective. And this is where the Greeks have it right. And the Romans too is that you're an individuated part of a whole. And when we start putting the team in front of ourselves, when we start, instead of caring about the quote-unquote purity of one's convictions and start caring about um, understanding that the means is never pure, but the ends are. And so anything that, that basically, I'm a, I'm a follower of, you know, the ends justify the means so long as the means do not, are not prejudicial to the ends, right? And so I think there's such a wide cone of ability and coalition building within that, which will allow us to arrive at the conclusions or the state that we want to be in, which is basically in power, prosperous, and uh, more full of life than before, more fulfilled than before. 
And to be frank with you, um, a lot of this will come out. I, I don't like hand waving because I think it's not really a good thing, but a lot of this will happen as an organic synthesis. You already start seeing Christians that are very given to the message that BAP is giving. And of course, by weight alone, um, pagans actually do have to, of course, give pride of place to Christians and their vision of things. Um, it's about making sure that you're firm on principle and flexible on our approach. And uh, I guess I don't like giving prescriptions as far as how to solve this, because I believe in delegating authority and uh, basically uh, for the individual who's listening or yourself being open-minded um, the way that you make friends or enemies is by sharing the same ends. And even if you don't share the same exact ends, uh, you know, you're close enough and you can work with that, but you can't work with someone that's diametrically opposed to you. And pagans aren't diametrically opposed to Christians or vice versa or vitalists or whatever. Um, I think we're just, we're just basically, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like when communists uh, talk about Trotskyites being counter-revolutionary, Stalinists being counter-revolutionary, and they whack each other and kill each other. But in reality, if you step outside, you see, you still see one monolithic communism coalition. You know what I mean? It's right. the same thing. We're all in the same camp, and we got to get together because the enemy far outmans us. They outstrip us, but what they don't have is a greatness of spirit and soul and a determination of willpower that we have. And uh, I like that saying is uh, one man is 10,000 if he's best, but each of us is 1 million. And if only we could put away the petty prejudices and stupid fights that we have between each other, we could conquer the world. Yes. I think that's a powerful and beautiful note to end on. Is there anything else you would like to add? Uh I think I've pretty much said my piece aside from, of course, I'm a huge fan of uh, your college and your project. And I hope to see you uh, one day make a mega, mega university with all the uh, different, you know, engineers and, uh, you know, the liberal arts and so on actually make a comeback in this country. It'd be great. Yes. Farmers, liberal arts lovers and space age maximalists and <laughs> uh, officers will all come together uh, in one place. That's right. There will be, be few students at the school, but all godlike. <laughs> so. I like this. Good. Well, well, thank Lance, you so much, brother. It's been a great pleasure. I learned a lot. Um, yeah, this was excellent. I really appreciate the honor. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. All right. Well, Montana and Lance are out.